Well, about uh, 110 years ago, something happened that people didn't believe at all. You may know about this, you may not, but in uh, the Christmas season, Christmas Eve of 1914, something happened in World War I uh, that, that people just didn't believe. They thought it was a myth, that they thought it was fake. And World War I was one of the worst wars or the worst war that the world had ever seen, and it was a trench warfare and uh, soldiers would be in trenches on one side and enemy soldiers on the other in horrible conditions. Many died due to exposure and, and disease and all sorts of stuff. And on Christmas Eve 1914, British and French soldiers were in one trench. And across what they called no man's land, because anyone who stepped into that was instantly killed, were the German forces. And some point in time on that Christmas Eve, the British and French soldiers heard the Germans singing Christmas carols. And fast forward to the next day, the Germans came out with white flags. And the British and the French soldiers came and they met in the middle of no man's land and they sang carols and they held services and they exchanged gifts. They played some football and they allowed one another to bury the dead. This is a picture, I think it was up there already, but that's a picture uh, for, of German, British, and French soldiers together. And that was published in, in newspapers, and people just didn't, didn't believe it. They couldn't believe that this would actually happen. And, and instantly after that, officers on both sides, on each army, ensured that on pain of death, this would never happen again. Because any type of friendship or seeing the enemy as human really dampens the spirits of a soldier who are sent to kill another. And so... Peace happened for a short period of time, and any peace between people on earth that's set apart uh, about by something external, whether it's a ceasefire that's set, or someone sets a law, or someone decides we're not going to do this and tries to make others do that, all peace will be temporary where it's external. The only kind of peace that can ever, ever be lasting is peace that begins in our hearts towards others, and the only one I suggest, and I believe with all my heart, that can make a lasting peace like that in our hearts towards others so that there may be peace on earth is Jesus. And so today we're going to look at aspects of Jesus' peace, and we're going to take a bit of a trip through the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament to see what is this peace that Jesus brings and why is it important to us. The first aspect is that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Now, uh, we looked at this scripture last week, and it does speak about hope, but we're going to start there again this morning and focus on peace. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies, will make this happen. Jesus was prophesied to be called this coming one. We know it's Jesus now. They didn't then. They didn't know who it was. He would be the Prince of Peace. And he would set up a government that would be lasting. And its peace would never end. And what the, the Israelites, what the Jewish people in the Old Testament times on up into Jesus' day were looking for was another king in the line of David who would set up a, a, a dynasty and uh, get rid of these oppressive Romans, who had overthrown most of the, the, the world around them. And, and this leader and ruler would rise up with military strength and power and come and show everyone who's boss. 
and that's what they looked for. But one would come in a different way. He would rule, but he'd rule differently with justice and peace. And he would cause something in hearts that no physical human king could ever do. No dynasty, no empire, no laws could ever do. The prophet Micah speaks about the same thing. And he says that Jesus is our source of peace. So Jesus is the prince of peace. Jesus is the source of peace. Second aspect. Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come to you for, on my behalf. The people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies until the woman in labor gives birth. Then at last his fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land. Now there's a few things going on here. Prophecies often have a both-and meaning. So there is parts of the prophecy that have to do with Jesus' first advent or coming. So it's what people in the Old Testament would look for in a Messiah. Someone would come and do these things. But there's a second meaning about Jesus' second advent in the end of times when he will return and restore all things, make all things new, new heavens, new earth. And so there's this ruler from the distant past who will be born in Bethlehem and will come and end all this oppression. And so they, they, Mike is drawing into this all of their oppression, slavery, their past. Israel has this history. That's their history. They come from 400 years of slavery and then exile after exile because they disobey God and God allows the consequences of their wickedness to catch up with them. And they look to God again and again, and God never betrays them, never leaves them, never forsakes them. And so they're looking for this Messiah to come, and this one will be born in Bethlehem. And of course, Matthew makes that clear, that this is Jesus. And when the wise men travel, and they end up in Jerusalem, and they speak to the king of the time, King Herod, King Herod calls the religious leaders and says, where's this newborn king of the Jews that's prophesied, that these wise men are looking for? Where is he going to be born? because I want to kill him. <laughs> I serve under Caesar Augustus. If I allow under my watch a new king to rise up and these Jews come out from under our boots, I'm in a lot of trouble. And so they say Micah speaks of that in Bethlehem. And so Herod gives a decree that all the boys aged two years and under, because they don't know exactly when this Messiah, this newborn king of the Jews was born, was to be killed. But Micah continues. There's more. Because this one from distant past, we know it's Jesus because he's a second person of the Trinity, he will stand and lead his flock with the Lord's strength and the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. Then his people will live there undisturbed, for he will be highly honored around the world. Verse 5, really important. And he will be the source of peace. So he's not just the prince of peace. He is the literal source. And Micah gives this illustration of being a shepherd and... Uh, the Israelite people and the Jewish people reading this at the time would understand that. They knew about keeping sheep and the shepherds were some of the first, were the, the first to have this announced that Jesus was born and they were commissioned to go into Bethlehem and tell all the people that this one prophesied had come. And Jesus said about himself, I am the good shepherd. I laid down my life for the sheep. This shepherd ruler would be different. And he wouldn't bring peace through military might. He wouldn't bring peace by overthrowing King Herod or 
Caesar Augustus or the governor Quirinius or any of these people mentioned in the biblical account of the Christmas narrative, any of the rulers of the day who through their government and through their military caused a kind of peace. You, you didn't want uprisings to come. In fact, when we fast forward to Jesus' uh, trial and crucifixion, part of what's going on there under Pilate is they're trying to squash, quell, keep away another insurrection. They happened regularly. People would rise up and stir up the people, some claiming to be Messiah, some revolutionaries, some wanting to get rid of Rome and the, the superpower it is, and they would stop that right away. And often when the leader died, the whole movement died, and that's not what happened with Jesus' followers. And so Micah prophesied that this would be one who is the source of peace. There would be something different about his rule as shepherd. You see, shepherds cared for their flock. They would lay down their life for their sheep. They would get between predator and sheep. They, they would do things that a ruler, a conqueror, an emperor would never do. And this shepherd ruler, being the source of peace, would bring peace because of his love and his sacrifice and his goodness. A very different source of peace. These prophecies speak about a time when this source of peace will be unending. And so what we have to understand here is some biblical prophecy that we won't get into too much that we find in the book of Revelation and then peppered throughout the Old Testament. And there's something known as the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ. And so uh, sometime in the end times, there will be a thousand-year reign of Christ. Scholars and um, theologians are torn on what this means. There's all sorts of views because it is vague. And some believe that this will be uh, a period of time in the church age, which we're in, the last age of the earth before Jesus returns. And it's something that happens in the hearts of his people and begins to spread in the earth. And the gospel reaches all nations before Jesus comes again. Others believe that this will be some sort of a physical kingdom, but Jesus doesn't physically reign on earth for these thousand years, but he reigns in the hearts of his followers, and then he returns and makes all things new, a new heavens and new earth. And others believe when Jesus returns, he ushers in a physical kingdom where he sits on a throne in Jerusalem itself, reigns for a thousand years with resurrected believers, and then the judgment and new heavens and new earth. All are very good. All make sense. I can't make sense of it all. I'm just going to be honest with this Israel, Palestine, Gaza thing. I've been digging into my theology and listening to podcasts and reading and praying and studying because my views, I'm just, I'm trying to land somewhere. And I, I'm, I'm having difficulty supporting the state of Israel who doesn't worship the God of Israel. Many of the the government people don't even worship God. I'm having trouble with Palestinians who are causing terror but also suffering. I'm having trouble reconciling land covenants and rulers and timelines with a God of peace, with a prince of peace and with a source of peace. But what we do need to know is that regardless of how things play out in those thousand years, they will be a time of peace culminating with a new heavens and a new earth where the prince of peace and the shepherd of peace rules and reigns on high forever. And guess what? Here's the good news. 
wherever our theology lands, he rules and reigns now. His kingdom is now and it's not yet. He is the prince of peace with his first advent. He is the source of peace with his first advent, his first coming. But the fullness of that hasn't yet come until he returns. And he reigns on high beside his father, waiting to go and return, make all things new, resurrect his followers. And that's good news. In the meantime, there's another aspect of Jesus' peace. What he does now in his people. He is a unifier. The unifier through peace. He unifies his people in a way that laws, hopes, promises of a utopian society, a government with whatever policies could never do. Paul says this in Ephesians. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. If you are a follower of Jesus, he has already brought peace to you. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. So he made something new, a new covenant. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles. He made peace between people and God as well, he says elsewhere, by creating in himself one new people from two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility towards each other was put to death. Why is he only talking about Jews and Gentiles? Because he's writing to a church in Ephesus who's struggling with this. Those who were Jews who first heard the gospel and became believers were having a hard time accepting non-Jewish people, and there is this back and forth. But he says in Galatians, he extends this, and he says, now in Christ there's no Jew or Gentile, no male or female, no slave or free. What he's saying is that in Christ, all of us, regardless of sex, status, how much money we have, what we've got going on in our lives, our ethnicity, our race, our background, all of that, it's not like it's gone. It just doesn't matter by way of status. And so we all come with unique backgrounds and unique heritage. We come with unique lives and unique roles to play. But when we come here and when we come together, there's a peace he creates in our heart that is greater than British and French soldiers meeting on the battlefield for one day of peace with German soldiers. Both of whom think the other is wrong. And so the Prince of Peace and the Shepherd Ruler of Peace brings unity in our hearts so that we might have a foretaste of this coming kingdom. We can live it here and now. It's our opportunity. And so the church is supposed to be a place where we learn to get along. We learn to have peace with one another. We learn to see other people as equal. There's no dominance. There is difference and uniqueness. But there's equality. And so we have a body with different parts. We have a temple with different pieces. We have all these metaphors. Family with different roles. That's metaphors used in Scripture for who we are. All wonderfully beautifully coming together. And we're meant to serve one another and love one another and be the atmosphere into which lost people who don't know the Prince of Peace yet can come and see there's something different with those people. However, (laughs) if you look at social media and if you listen to opinions about the church 
and Jesus followers, or Christians, or Christ followers, whatever you want to call yourself, not generally (laughs) too good because we're often seen as judgmental, hypocritical, exclusive, mean. That ought not be the way here. And we get opportunity to learn and to have a foretaste. So in the Old Testament, all the system of sacrifice, all the prophecies, all the laws, everything pointed to Jesus. It was all a foretaste of a better thing to come, a better way, a new covenant, a once-for-all lamb, a sacrifice once for all. His blood shed, not only to create freedom from sin, but to inaugurate a kingdom with a prince of peace who will rule forever. And he invites everyone into it. Now here's the crazy thing. The empire of Rome forced, forced peace. And they did this through uh, conquering, counting, census, count the people, make sure we get enough taxes, taxing, enslaving, oppression, serving under Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, the head of Rome at the time, was seen not only as a son of the gods, sound familiar? Christ, the son of God, but a god himself and worshipped. And so when this newborn king of the Jews comes on the scene and is announced to be the son of God, boy, they're worried. And they're expecting military might, but he comes in humility as a baby and institutes something different. A kingdom of peace where the oppressed, the taxed, the slave, the poor, the ones who can't make it in Roman society, which is built on hierarchy of race and sex and power and money and status. And Roman citizens have more rights than anyone else. And men have more rights than women. And owners have more rights than slaves. In the New Testament, people would come into the gathering of the church and would greet one another with a holy kiss. And slave and slave owner are equal. And male and female are equal. And Jew and Gentile and every race, color and creed come equally. It's talked about by poets. It's talked about by activists. So singers and poets sing and write about it. Activists protest and activate about it. But it's never lasting. Because when you have someone who hates another person or is withholding latent things, bitterness, it's eventually going to come out. And so Paul, Paul speaks about this union. And Christ in himself creates this. And while we wait for Jesus' second advent, as they waited for his first advent, they got a foretaste of the kingdom and of sacrifice and of freedom from sin. And we get a better foretaste, but it's not in fullness. And so while we wait, we can receive and experience this peace in our hearts as Christ makes us right with God and makes us right with one another. And as we walk that out, the more we learn to live like Christ, the more we see one another with his eyes. We make allowance for one another's faults. We learn to speak truth and love. We both confront and rebuke and love and restore. And we know how to do all these things. And it becomes a better thing. We get a foretaste of the coming kingdom. And so that leads us to the fourth aspect, and we're going to rewind back into the Old Testament because Isaiah talks about Jesus who brings eternal peace. Jesus brings eternal peace. This is a picture. I I don't know if he's talking about the thousand-year reign of Christ 
or when all things are made new, new heavens, new earth, we often refer to that as heaven. I don't know. But this sounds pretty good. Isaiah 11. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Someone will come out of the family line of David who will rule and reign as a king. A, a king in the line of David. There's a Davidic covenant. God makes a covenant with David and says, you will always have someone from your family on the throne. Joseph, Jesus' father, technically, God is his father, but Joseph, Jesus' stepfather, was in the line of David. Jesus was born into the kingly line. He is the branch or the shoot from the foundational stump, cut off for years because of disobedience. At the time of Jesus, there's no reigning king. The tree is cut but still alive and something will grow. You ever seen that? You ever had that? You cut, cut down, I've done that, right? We cut down a tree and you're like, okay, that's great. And that starts to grow again. You cut it down, go away. You have to rip the whole thing out. The Davidic line cannot be ripped out. And so Jesus comes and he's going to be different because the spirit of God is on him. Spirit of wisdom and understanding. He's a different kind of a king than David or Solomon or any of the good kings. Forget the bad kings in the Old Testament. He's better than all the good kings. In verse 3, Isaiah continues this prophecy. God speaking through Isaiah, telling us what it will be like one day. He will delight in obeying the Lord. That's a different kind of a king. He will not judge by appearance. That's a good thing. Nor make decisions based on hearsay. That happens all the time. Kings and judges and people in charge catch the ear of someone they like and make a decision that's unjust because they want to please someone. This ruler, this shepherd, this prince of peace won't do that. He will give justice to the poor. He will make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word and one breath of his mouth will destroy the wicked. It's not just that he's pure. It's not just that he's righteous. It's not just that he brings that. His presence as the source of peace actually destroys, limits, keeps wickedness, sin, and death from having any power or reign anymore. And in the end, when Jesus returns and when there's final judgment, sin, death, Satan himself, anyone and anything connected to evil, darkness, wickedness, is cast away, separated from God and his peace. Separated from those who choose to be in his kingdom to receive that peace and live in that forever. This king would be different. It gets better. It gets way better. Verse 5. He will wear righteousness. Put a pin in that. We're going to come back to righteousness in a little bit. Righteousness being not just holiness, um, but right living, everything pure, holy, perfection. He, he wears this. It's a part of him. Righteousness like a belt. And truth. There's no lack of truth. How many times do we disagree with someone because we say, well, that's your truth and this is my truth. What does our world say? Hold your truth. There is a truth and it's in Jesus. He'll wear it righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. In that day, this is great. This is amazing. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion. And the little child will lead them all. Who? Begins with the little child. 
baby Jesus. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safe near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will put his hand in the nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with the people who know the Lord. You know who's going to be present in this kingdom? Anyone who chooses it. God is not one who deems that he keeps some out and some in. He welcomes all. Jesus welcomes all. But he is a good, just, righteous, fair God of truth. He will not make you follow him. He will not make you receive peace. He will not make you experience his peace between him or between others. And he will not make you spend eternity in his peace. It's our choice. And so as the waters cover the sea, one day the earth will be filled. I don't know if that's this earth, new earth. I'll let you know. I'm figuring it out. (laughs) But one day, the only people present in this are those who've chosen, not because God is cruel and hateful, but because sin and death itself, sorrow, any possibility for evil or wickedness is undone. Scholars figure uh, before the fall in Genesis, in chapter 1 and 2, since there was no death, that meant that animals didn't kill one another. Adam named them and was with them in the garden. And there's a restoration of that, not back to the way it was, but way, way better. That's a crazy piece. Predator and prey together, a child leading. That's an insane picture. So gather up all we've talked about, all these prophecies, all the stuff. Maybe it's new to you, maybe it's not. Put it all right here. And now listen to this. This is, if you're familiar with the Christmas narrative, this scripture. Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. This announcement is not just from, shepherd, uh, from angels to shepherds. It's not just this amazing thing. It packs all that in there. God is saying, this peace I've prophesied, it's starting now. This peace on earth that will spread and be to all people, but only experienced by those with whom God is pleased. Who's God pleased with? He's pleased with those who've chosen to follow him. He loves everyone. Jesus died for everyone. Look, if you're a teacher or you've been over children or you have your own children, you know this. You may love them all equally. But man, it's a joy for those who listen. Those disobedient ones who just try and get under your skin, you are not pleased with them. You, you can say you are. You can debate with me and say, I love them all equally and I'm as equally pleased. You are not. Go serve in a kindergarten class with five rambunctious boys for one month, okay? I dare you. And see who you're pleased with. The quiet little girls who listen and play in the corner or the boys who want to throw balls at your face, right? You are pleased with the ones who listen. Boys aren't bad and girls aren't good. It's just an illustration. But God is the same way. He is well pleased with those who choose him and live to do his will. Part of his will is this. In our waiting, in our waiting, in this kingdom of peace, we have opportunity not just to experience peace. 
oftentimes at Christmas, we talk about experiencing peace. And sermons are about that, and we want to experience peace. I want you to experience peace. That's a big part of Christmas, absolutely. But the point of you experiencing peace is being part of a kingdom where you rehearse it. You learn to be peacemakers here, and you share and spread that as well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who died at the hands of um, the Nazis in World War II, greatest theologian of our time, said this, with the birth of Jesus, the great kingdom of peace has begun. It's not a miracle that where Jesus has really become Lord over people, peace, uh, is it not a miracle? I'm going to start that whole thing, okay? With the birth of Jesus, the great kingdom of peace has begun. Is it not a miracle that where Jesus has really become Lord over people, peace reigns? That there is one Christendom on the whole earth in which there is peace in the midst of the world. Only where Jesus is not allowed to reign, where human stubbornness, defiance, hate, and avoidance, and avarice are allowed to live on unbroken. Can there be no peace? Jesus does not want to set up his kingdom of peace by force, but where people willingly submit themselves to him and let him rule over them, he will give them his wonderful peace that starts now. If you are not a follower of Jesus, you have opportunity to believe in him, receive forgiveness and peace, a new nature, a new life, a new heart that causes you to go on a different path and live differently. We are not a religion of new rules. We have the Old Testament rules and now they get kind of modified into Jesus-y Old Testament, New Testament kind of stuff. That's, that's not what we are. We are a new kingdom, a new people, made completely new. Jesus fulfilled what he was called to do, and he fulfilled the law and the prophets. And in him is life and life, life and light. In him is lasting, eternal peace. And we live in a kingdom of now and not yet. He will not force you to follow him, but he invites you to experience his peace. So what do we do in the meantime? We're in this now and not yet. There's a few things we can do. We need to um, receive and share peace by being peacemakers. Uh, Joyce, and, um, Joyce and Earl Regan, uh, in a certain Sunday in December of 1980, decided they were going to gather up their two boys and make a Christmas day of it. Joyce had booked uh, Christmas pictures. Anybody remember Christmas pictures like Sears, Walmart, stuff like that. Anybody want to try that again? Anyone? No, I remember uh, Zares down here with our kids, and oh man, you would not make me pastor if you saw <laughs> the anger and the frustration trying to get our kids to sit still. Just, just sit in the sleigh. Just, just do it. And so Joyce and Earl Regan gathered their kids up and took them to the Photoshop in December of 1980, only to discover that they had found no room for them at the inn. <laughs> they had lost their appointment and had no space. So they went about the rest of their Christmas shopping and getting Christmas tree and things like that. And when they arrived home and got in the house, Joyce realized it was missing. You see, Joyce had been saving up money, and for the first time as a family, they budgeted all fall and didn't need to go into debt. And she had squirreled away $100 cash. Doesn't seem like much, but in December 1980, for them, that was a lot. 
And she felt it was a little bit of her fault. Because as they bumped along in the car and were singing carols and so happy, she was so proud of doing this budgeting that fall that she pulled out the gray bank envelope where she had received the cash, the $100 cash, held it out, let the kids see it, and they were all excited about what they'd buy and what they'd spend. And this was leftover. And they arrived home, and she couldn't find it. Well, that night, she was just, just a mess. She was just a mess, and they tried to have a good night, and she did her best. And as she went, was getting ready for bed, her husband Earl gave her a hug and said, it's going to be okay. Uh, just forget about it. And they prayed about it. And it didn't help one bit. <laughs> she, she went to bed, and she tossed and turned, and she woke up the next morning. She stewed about it. She got the kids ready for school, and she went off herself a teacher. And all class long, all she could think of all throughout the whole day was this lost $100. How could she be so foolish? Was God punishing her because she skipped church or because she was foolish? What was going on? And it hit her. She had a prompting. And she felt like her and Earl and the boys should just go retrace their steps after school. And so they did. They went back to the different places they had been. They went to uh, the gas station where they had filled up and they looked around, they couldn't find it. They went to the cemetery where they laid flowers for Joyce's grandmother. They couldn't find anything and they looked all over the driveway and the front yard and in the house and in every piece of clothing and bag and book to no avail. Well, when they got home from looking, Joyce thought it's, it's not good to stew on this and to be so worried and so she went in her room and she got on her knees and she prayed while Earl and the boys were getting supper ready, and she just, she just asked God for peace. And she said, God, you know, there's this $100, and, and we could really use it, but all our money, including that, is yours. And I give it to you. And if you want to use that for someone else, then you go right ahead. And then it hit her. She remembered the $200. Not only had they budgeted all fall for Christmas, but her and Earl had put away $200 to use for someone in need. And they were waiting for God to tell her who to spend it on. And she had the thought, we're in need. <laughs> and as quick as she thought it, God told her no. She said that the peace of Christ washed over her in that moment as she turned over all her money, all the $100, the $200 for others, everything else in that Christmas season. And she got up and went out and they sang Christmas carols and they had a great evening. She didn't even think about it as they drifted off to sleep. And the whole next day, she prayed about it in the morning and it just didn't seem to bother. She didn't think about it as she taught her class. Hopefully not a kindergarten class like I described before. But at break... Just before she had this prompting, again, still a small voice of the Holy Spirit, call the places you visited. So she did. She found a quiet place in the school where there was a phone, and she called the gas station, and the lady on the phone said, no, we haven't found anything, I'm sorry, and she called the cemetery. And the owner of the cemetery answered the phone, and she says, look, this is a, this is a weird question. But I'm wondering if you might have found some money. And the owner said, oh, money? She said, yeah, it, it was in a gray bank envelope, um, and it was about $100. And the owner said, 
how about 96? And she said, yes. He said, our worker, Reuben Siles, he found it. He was picking up garbage and thought it was garbage, but something told him to look inside, and when he saw it was money, being raised in a poor family himself, he thought, I don't want someone else to miss out on Christmas either. And so he turned it in. He, he couldn't even believe that he didn't just throw it in the trash bag. And so she said, thank you so much. We'll be there this afternoon. I hope Reuben is there for us to thank him. They rushed from their jobs and picking up kids and they got to the cemetery and talked to the owner and Reuben Sales wasn't there. He had left for the day. And so they gave $10 of the 100 to the owner and said, please, please give this to Reuben as a bit of a reward and a, and a thanks for what he's done. As they piled in the car and drove out the long driveway of the cemetery on that snowy day, it hit them both. The $200. It was for Reuben. Well, they came back the next day and Reuben was there and they met with him. And they said, listen, we want to give you something. And Reuben said, no, 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 no. I grew up in a poor family. I know what it's like. You keep your money. I don't want any of it. I don't need a reward. And Earl said, you don't understand. It's not a reward. It's a gift. God told us to give it to you. God is telling us to give you $200. Well, that phrase hung in the air for a few moments. No one said a word. And finally, Reuben said, you know, a few days ago, I was sitting down, working out my bills. And I didn't have enough to cover my expenses. And I had this thought that I'd put away a little bit of money to help others and maybe I should use that for myself, but I, I just couldn't do it. Something was telling me not to do that and that it would be okay. And so I said a simple prayer. I'm not a praying man, but I said a simple prayer. God, if you would just give me the money I need, then I'll take what I've saved for others and give it to them. And he said, the deficit in my budget the amount that I need to cover my bills this Christmas is exactly $200. You see, when we allow the peace of Christ to rule and reign as people of his kingdom, we're not just a church. We're people of a kingdom, an eternal kingdom, with a prince of peace and a shepherd ruler who will rule in truth and righteousness. When we allow his peace to wash over us, to rule and reign in our hearts, he puts things in place so that his peace, though not fully realized because he's not reigning on a throne, there's still a, another kingdom at play in this world. The kingdom of sin, the kingdom of darkness. It's already lost. Its time is already up, but not yet come. And while we live in this dark world, he gives us opportunity to invite others to experience the peace we will one day have in all the fullness we could never imagine. And so he invites us to receive and share peace by being a peacemaker. James says this, but the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It's peace loving. You want to know how to live in a wise way? Love, peace. It's gentle at all times, willing to yield to others. It's full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. Last week we talked about good deeds. We're talking about it again. It shows no favoritism, and it's always sincere. That's God's leading. Previous series, 
in the whispers, how to hear God, this is what God's voice sounds like. He will encourage us to do these type of good deeds, this type of life. And those who are peacemakers, not peacekeepers, bringing peace actively through a heart washed over and committed to Jesus Christ and his peace and living in a way in the world that his peace can flow through them. They will be peacemakers. They will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Jesus will be where righteousness and truth, his kingdom of righteousness is meant to sit and rest and abide in your hearts as he makes you right with God and makes you right with others, beginning with those in your church family in the kingdom because we're unified and we all have his peace already. But then he spreads that through us to others. We can be peacemakers, plant seeds of peace through deeds of peace. Now, I'm no farmer, but I married into a farm family. Here's what I know. Don't follow my advice. In order to get a good harvest, you need to have good soil and good conditions. You can do something about the soil. You can't do anything about the good conditions and the weather. But you can do your best to plant good seeds in good soil. To reap a harvest of righteousness, meaning right living, godliness, the fruit of the gospel, people coming to know Jesus, people seeing Jesus in you, causing change in the world greater than any activist or peace-loving person without Jesus. In a deeper way, people having peace with one another in their hearts. We're enmity of race and status, enmity of nationality, of sex, of, of anything you might have in differential with someone else, goes away, melts away. And you see them as Jesus sees them. To have that kind of peace, you need to have your heart changed by Christ. You need to receive peace first. You must receive his peace for this to happen. We cannot be good people. I, we can make some rules here. We can say, we're going to go out and we're going to you know, feed the hungry and, and bless the poor and do all these good deeds. That's wonderful. It's necessary. But those are seeds that others might see Jesus in you, might ask why we are different and receive peace themselves. If the soil of your heart is full of bitterness towards anyone else or full of enmity towards God because you've not received him, you can't hope to see a harvest of righteousness in our time. I'm not talking about some sort of utopia on earth. I'm talking about the church doing what the church is called to do. The church being his people, a kingdom of peacemakers. Peacekeepers avoid conflict and overlook things and don't stand up against injustice. And we just want it. Anybody else? Peacekeeper? I tend to be a peacekeeper. Jesus confronted false peace everywhere he went. And it was mayhem. The Pharisees hated it. He stood against injustice. Jesus' kingdom invites those who are oppressed, those who are downtrodden, those who are overtaxed, the slaves, the poor, those who are seen as less than, to an equal table as those who think they're something, and it turns the kingdom on its head. And Jesus invites us to be peacemakers. So first of all, receive his peace. Secondly, so how do we do these seeds? How do we turn good deeds into seeds? First of all, have that seed planted in your heart. Receive his peace. Allow him to wash 
over you, cleanse you, change your heart, give you a new identity and a new way of looking at others. Not because you make a decision and you decide to do something new, but because you're in a process of learning to be who you've already made. Does that make sense? At the moment of belief, you're made new. New heart, new life, new future, all of it. We have all this baggage and we're used to certain habits and ways of being, sinful ways. We just continue on in those until we learn that is not who we are. It's actually contrary and should feel weird. Should feel weird in the church when we have enmity and strife and we're not unified and we have factions and things aren't nice. Secondly, make peace with each other. This is where we practice. This is where we learn. You got something wrong with someone? Make peace. Do something. Stand against injustice. Learn a name. Overlook a fault. Forgive. There's many ways to make peace. Some of them solve conflict. Some of them make the atmosphere for peace. Some make a, a welcoming atmosphere. Learn a name. Give a gift. Do something to make peace here. Helping us to be a people of peace. People helping people follow Jesus as peacemakers. And third, make peace with others. What you learn here, take wherever you go. Okay, so we plant seeds of peace through deeds of peace. Like Joyce, when you allow God to wash over your heart and life, fill you with peace where she should be worried, panicked. Oh my goodness, I lost this money. What are we going to do? What about the kids? And how many? Our minds naturally think that way. But in his kingdom, with the Prince of Peace, he does the unthinkable. He can change that. He can change you. Receive his peace. Work peace out here with others in, a, in an atmosphere where you and another follower of Jesus who are unified through his spirit who should be getting along, learn to do that. Come alongside others that you get along with and learn to deepen relationships beyond what is naturally possible in the world. We're human, but we're kind of extra human because we have the Spirit of God in us. And when we are united with other people, there is this possibility for peace that we've never dreamed of across everyone. Anyone who comes in, anyone we meet, has equal share at Christ's table. And that's what I love about the church, and that's what I love about this church. Last Sunday, if you weren't able to be here for church together, sitting around tables and just making silly little gingerbread houses. It wasn't about gingerbread houses and all that stuff. It's just about being together, learning to live in peace, to support one another, so that when you go through difficulty, you have your people. When others go through difficulty, you are those people. When others rejoice, you rejoice. When others suffer, you suffer. We're a body connected. You've got one part that hurts, the rest hurts. One part is doing well, the rest does well. That's the picture of peace in the New Testament. And then you carry that elsewhere. So at school and work, you become the non-anxious present. Not the jerk everybody hates. <laughs> Don't go near that guy on the press. He, he's crazy, man. <laughs> he talks about this God stuff in a way that makes me uncomfortable and offends me. In fact, he's hypocritical. Don't do that. Be a peacemaker by your presence. Be the one who comes alongside those. The first one 
of people at school or work or home or your clubs or the hockey arena, wherever you are, who is making peace. You're the one who's coming alongside first those who are going through a tough time, offering to bring a meal, listening, doing the things that don't come natural to most people. We hear lots of those things outside the church as well. It's not like humans who are not Christians can't be friendly or peacemakers. God gives us his image. He builds us in. He bakes his nature into us. But those who are not redeemed have been so caked on and marred by sin that we can't be who he's made us to be until we're released from that power. But you do better. You learn here. You go above and beyond. You make peace happen by your presence, by your deeds, by your acts. And just wait and see. Like Joyce, collected money at a cemetery. It wasn't until they left. That's a true story. Until they were leaving that they realized that seed of peace that God had planted in their hearts months before to put away some money. And that seed of peace that God had washed over her when she got on her knees and released what she was so clinging to to use any way God saw fit. God brought peace. And God caused that man to experience the peace of Christ in some way he hadn't expected. That's the way God works. I've seen God do the impossible in people's lives. Between people who disagree, people who um, are frustrated, people who are, have anything but peace, whose whole world is a mess and chaos. And God comes in and reorders things over time alongside a peacemaker who is the hands and feet of the shepherd ruling prince of peace. The source of peace in you and through you. That's being a peacemaker. Glory to God. That's glory to God. Thank you, God, for bringing peace. Not because we look forward to a day when I sit back and I wait and Jesus will come and depending on your theology, he takes you away before the tribulation happens or he sits with you when the tribulation, you sit back and you watch and you wait and Jesus will come someday for his church. I'm glory bound on my train bound for heaven. Please come get me Jesus and I'm going to sit and do nothing but enjoy Christmas cookies while I wait for you to come. That is not the kingdom of peace. He wants us to actively engage in our world as peacemakers. Working in, in peace in our lives and working out peace through our lives. My encouragement to you is simple. Ask God how he can plant seeds of peace through deeds of peace through you and then watch. We've got testimony Sunday coming up in January where we just invite people to share for two or three minutes what God has done this past year. Love it. It's awesome. I'm putting a bug in your ear right now. I would love to hear stories of how hope came working out of you, peace working out of you, things that God has done as we've committed ourselves to be these types of people in our world as Jesus works in us and through us. So I encourage you this Christmas season, ask God how you can plant seeds of peace through deeds of peace. Would you stand with me as we pray? God, we can't even fathom what uh, that kind of peace would be like where predator and prey are together. Some of us can't even imagine a peace in our homes, in our businesses, in our 
families and our friend group with others around us, maybe in this church or maybe outside who we have had enmity with for years. We feel like we're in trenches. And once in a while, we have a nice little moment in no man's land where we exchange a kind word, a kind gift, and then we go back to our warring. Would you bring a deeper peace in our hearts as we allow your peace to wash over us, to cause us to see others as you see them? Move us beyond humanitarian peace that we hear about in the world, which is good and I think you're the author of. That depends on activities and physical things and boundaries and rules and kings and kingdoms and governments to make happen. May we see your peace rest and abide deeply in our hearts, beginning with us in our own individual lives, spreading into our homes and our church family and just overflowing everywhere. May we be more and more and more a place of peace in the chaos of a world who needs you. That when we gather, whether it's a small group or a large group, whether people are watching online or physically present, that we would just have a sense when we're together that you are here and you bring peace. May we just have that sense that the, the worry and the anxieties that rest and abide on our shoulders over things like losing money or serious things like sickness and all the impossible things we can't possibly fix. May we just have a sense of your peace that you're holding them and that you can bring peace in the chaos and the darkness of our world. Help us to be peacemakers. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.